Welcome to the Smart City Podcast, the technology program that looks at how buildings, communities, and cities are becoming smarter, more efficient, and more connected. We look at everything from the big ideas to drilling down to individual projects and innovative ideas that impact your day-to-day life. The Smart City Podcast is brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Welcome to episode 10, recorded on January 14th, 2021. I'm Alan Cross, along with Locomobi World founder and CEO Grant Furlane. And our guest this week is John Lawrence, a journalist who has a very deep interest in smart cities and has written extensively about them. First, though, here's Grant and his collection of tech news. Before we dive into news, I want to let you know that I ran across another story about a caller that will let you understand what your dog or cat is saying. It was just in the paper. This is mid-January. Just there you go. The, and they, they, they went through all these different breeds. And uh, you put the collar on. And yeah. based on the sounds yep. that they make, they will translate hey, that to are you. Are we ahead of the times, Alan? No kidding. Are we ahead of the times? I mean, we mentioned uh, this on a previous podcast. I just want to let you know that it's finally coming to market. I'm there. And, and if I can if I can find one, if I can I'm get there. one, I'm so And we'll there. talk about it on the podcast. Okay. Because it's, although it's not. It is smart city because it's our animals. It, it is. Stuff. It is. And, you okay. know, we want to be Dr. Doolittle, all yeah, of us. Yeah. Okay. What do you got? Okay. I got some good news, I think. I got some good stuff today. Um, okay. So, we've been talking a lot about, Alan, today we're going to talk to about someone all about smart cities and mobility and so on. And um, there's a, a town in, in Britain, um, of course, good old Britain. I take my hat off to you. Uh, Chelmsford Garden Village. And they have, say, they have the future-proofed uh, village development for self-driving cars. And what I mean by that is that there'll be no driving in the village by people. You'll park your car at the perimeter of your village. That's where it'll always be parked. So it'll drive up, drop you off at your home. What will drive up? The car. Okay, so it'll drop off you. It'll it'll pull you up to your your unit. Yeah, you'll get out, and it'll find its way back to the parking lot. Okay, so and then got... you will summon it whenever you need it, and it'll go back on its own. Oh, so little autonomous shuttles. There are yeah, there are no cars staying or parked. There's no garages. There are no garages or driveways in this development. It's a true village, and all the cars or it's kind of like, you know, the knights in the castle. All the cars are, are outside waiting to be called. And then when you're ready, you call it. It picks you up and off you go wherever you're going. Oh, oh okay. So I was I was thinking that you had a car that you parked outside the village and then this vehicle no, would take you to no, your home and back. No, no. Oh. Step further. You, have, you cannot drive your car uh, around in this village. The only thing you can use it for is when you're done and coming back to home. Uh-huh. Um, it drops you off, and then it goes back to its holding lot. I get it. At the outside of the village, so you have this zero emission problems in the actual village. The cars hopefully will all be electric by then, uh, but don't have to be guys. But will be electric, and then you'll summon it to pick you up. But in the end of that, it's people just using the village. And um, when I say they, um, it's a talk. It's not really talk. It's in development plan now. And I think that um, I like it again. Uh, it has a lot of potential. I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm going to go off topic here and say valet. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the <laughs> Hello, ultimate. I, it's the ultimate valet system that you do now. And I'm sorry for the valet companies, but 
this is big. And I want to tell you only one thing. It's the only subject here that I talked about already in advance on LinkedIn. I had over 3,000 emails, uh, requests about it saying, are you serious? This is amazing. Well, yeah, I think, uh, I know, I mean, it's not a big deal for us technically, but I think it's great. And I see it way beyond. I see about special events, Disney, and your village, of course. But yeah, so that's news. Can I talk about a valet company I ran across once in Los Angeles? Sure, why not? In the San Fernando Valley. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, and all the valets were women. And the name of the company was Valley of the Dolls. Get out I'm of here. I'm not kidding. Okay. All right. Next story. That's innovation, by the way. It it's is not innovation. Te- I mean, just not technology innovation. No, but I. It's it, innovation. I, I, I have some, yeah, the, this many it. years right. later, I remember Valley of the Dolls. I'm good with it. It's innovation. Okay. Okay. Um, we're going to go and flip over to some cool stuff. Okay. I don't know if you know who Razor is, but Razor develops cool stuff. I think I just saw them in the paper today. Okay. Well, I'll tell you something. If you did, I can tell you what they're, they were talking about recently, and it may be out today. Okay. Um, let's get into the future and, and where we're going to be if we're going to be going forward and people are concerned about, about the pandemic and other stuff. Um, they've developed a smart face mask. That's okay. Okay, guys. Yeah. We're talking, we're talking futuristic as can be. Okay. So it will have, get this. It's an N95 mask. It has internal Filters, yes, that change themselves and clean themselves, and you can then clean them again. Um, it has integrated speaker system. So, what does that mean, guys? You ever listen to someone talking with the with your mask on? This has integrated speaker system, comes out clear and the voice you want. Um, so, we've now got these walking face masks and the illuminate at night, so that you can use the automatically illuminate at night. So lighting is based on um, essentially what you want on the face panel. And of course, it so eliminates all the things you're already having a problem that I thought we would never talk about as, you know. It wasn't a problem that but if required. I'm gonna, listen, if I'm going to have to have a mask for good, I'm getting that mask. Yeah, I, I, up, in, <laughs> I, up until 10 or 11 months ago, this was a problem that didn't require a solution because the problem didn't exist. I'm in. Okay. I'm in. If we have to wear them a lot and whether that means, because in the new world, we're always going to worry about certain things and it's a cleaner world. And even if we have to wear them sometimes, that's the one I want. Or, or in, in, in certain Asian cities, we're wearing a mask as a- Done now. It's, it's done, done now. now. Well, it's always guys, been done. When you see pictures of people in China wearing masks, sake was created today. Yeah. Or, or Japan, or yeah, Tokyo, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, that's Razor. They always do this cool stuff. Whether it will ever become a sellable gadget, who knows? But I think it is, in my view, um, pretty cool. Okay, give me one more. Okay, now I'm going to freak everybody out. Okay? Let's freak out. Okay, artificial intelligence, robots. There's several ethical dilemmas that have been raised, and that is whether you can control your autonomous machines. Yes. Okay, so what they're saying now in theory, when you give a machine that has AI and even to the point of augmented reality with, um, say, um, we'll talk about again, the advanced, most advanced AI and advanced learning when you get into even cyber and so on, can they harm people? And the argument has been, Alan, 
Well, we'll develop a theoretical containment algorithm that will fight that. Sorry, the three laws of robotics. Isaac Asimov did this decades ago. Yep, yep. Um, so can we write an algorithm that can guarantee that these robots will not get smarter and make their own decisions? And decide that we need to, we're viruses that need to be stomped out. And I got it. I, I watched that movie, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is... Um, there is no algorithm that can determine whether an eye would harm the world. No such thing. Um, so that is the big discussion, and it's not a small discussion. And as we know, we talked about quantum computing, where it will be able to think around you, and you, you know, and that's why we're back. And so why not's fully out there? Uh, but in the scale of things, um, I wasn't really trying to scare people. Because I'm for the future, but there comes a time when you have to contain it. And this has been a big argument. If you guys follow, there's this little guy called Elon Musk mm, that has talked it. about robotics and how the, the computer is a the supercomputer like this is a threat. So you should, can watch and, and review a lot of things he has to say because I think uh, he is a, he understands and, and gets the whole thing. And you can go. Yeah, but he's building his own spaceship so he can leave when well, things I get. get it. Oh, no, no, no. I get the, I get the oxymoron. I get, but I'm just telling you, I mean, um, I'm all for it, but that is a big thing that came up recently that if we have these robots running around, can they turn on you? And I know people say that now. I'm sure there's people that say, I'm never going to do that. And I say, well, we have to build the algorithms to do it, but it's, it's a good way to, to leave and think about uh, the future of robotics. I don't mean robotics like, you know, assembly line. I'm talking about robots. Okay. The last thing I want is my fridge attacking me. <laughs> that I'm not worried about, but yes. Okay. Could be your cleaner, your robot. Could be my Roomba. Yeah, it could be. Anyhow, that's how I'll leave it today. I think it's a fun one to look yeah, at. Yeah, well, thank you. You can just rock me to sleep tonight. Yeah, absolutely. John Lawrence is a journalist who recently completed a massive 10-part series on smart cities for the Toronto Star. We had to get him on the program to tell us what he learned. He spoke to us from Toronto. Okay, John, uh, you have just finished publishing a series of articles, very in-depth articles in the Toronto Star about smart cities. And I, I don't even know where we're going to go with this conversation because there is so much to talk about. Uh, but maybe we begin with this. What got you interested in this topic in the first place? Well, I've been writing about cities and urban planning and urban politics for a long time. And about, um, I'd say about five or six years ago, I, I ended up writing a story initially for the Globe and Mail about um, sort of emerging ideas, many of them coming from New York City. In fact, when Mayor Bloomberg was, um, uh, you know, in City Hall and looking at how you know, how that city was using data, you know, everything from building inspection reports to, uh, you know, to um, energy consumption in buildings and sort of, you know, slicing it up and kind of analyzing it and looking for trends. And so I got quite interested in that, in that application. And, you know, I've written a bunch of stuff since then before I started doing the Atkinson work, but it's, you know, it's a huge market. Um, there are a lot of companies that are sort of developing smart city technologies of varying sorts. And now that we're into the pandemic and there's this huge, you know, shift towards digitization of everything, 
it becomes a more, you know, an increasingly relevant, um, you know, area to look at. So your articles ranged all over the world. You talk about Barcelona, you talk about this city and that city. What is the, the, the smartest city that you've seen so far? So uh, let me just say that even though I wrote like a lot, it was definitely not comprehensive. Um, and, you know, there are lots of different ways of answering your question. I, I found the most compelling, um, the most compelling examples were in the Netherlands, where the technology was put into service for a broader goal, which in the case of the Netherlands has to do with climate change and climate adaptation, because three quarters of the country is underwater um, or below sea level. And so they need to do everything they can to ensure that they don't become inundated because of sea level rise. And one of the tools that they use is technology in different ways um, uh, to, you know, to deal with, you know, excess water and so on. So to me, that was the most, uh, that was the the best example that I found. And so, you know, places like Rotterdam and Amsterdam. Yeah, it's actually um, correct for, if you're talking sustainability, um, I'd have to agree with them that uh, they have definitely take the leadership role and not by choice, by need. And so where they're more smart city for green technology and sustainability, um, I would probably say um, Singapore, uh, places like that are leading the smart city technology. Um, You've talked about Shanghai too. Shanghai would be there and they're all voted in the top, but no doubt he's right. If you're talking sustainability, Netherlands have jumped ahead of everybody are building some pretty incredible things that use sustainable energy for everything and using data analytics to, to, uh, to analyze it and use the data to better be more efficient because they have to. One of the things that you wrote about, which kind of freaked me out a little bit, was predictive policing. I mean, this is, this is real minority report stuff. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? So predictive policing comes from, uh, so it traces way back to sort of um, an approach that the New York City Police Department introduced in the early 1990s. But essentially, the idea is that you increasingly feed crime reports and, you know, reports about graffiti and property theft and so on into a big database that can um, that is trained to find patterns, right? So you're looking for patterns of crime, criminal behavior and property, you know, you know, property crime and so on. And once you find those patterns using analytics and machine learning and whatnot, then you can make predictions about where the next crime is likely to happen. Obviously, you can't say with 100% accuracy that the next crime will happen at, you know, 123 Edward Street. But if, but there is some, you know, there is some statistical probability that comes into it. And so that's the origin of predictive policing in it. Um, you know, there were a bunch of guys who were, you know, sort of mathematicians and um, statisticians in Southern California who kind of developed the algorithms. And then they began selling the technology to uh, police departments, especially the Los Angeles Police Department. And then over time, um, so sorry, it began primarily focused on property crime and, uh, you know, break and enters, um, theft of car thefts and so on. And then over time, there's been a move towards using, you know, social media and other big sources of information to make predictions about individuals and, um, you know, identify individuals that are at risk of either committing a crime or being the victim of a crime. Wait, 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 hang on. 
it's it's that granular that they can actually pick out individuals who might be uh, subjected to crime? Well, so this is the claim, right? So I think that the appropriate response to all of this is to approach it with skepticism because, you know, we live in a world where you're not guilty of a crime until you've committed it, right? So the, you know, the statistical probability that, you know, person X might commit another crime still doesn't make him or her guilty. So this is all driven by, by the increasing amount of personal data that is available in the world, right? Through social media platforms, through, uh, you know, tracking of, you know, of your, you know, your cell phone movements and so on. Um, and this is how it's, you know, it, you know, there, there are companies like Palantir that kind of grind together this information. They develop lists of, you know, like gang members, for example, using, you know, criminal records and conviction records and so on, and then generate predictions that way. Now, I mean, in the story, um, what's come out is that there's a lot, you know, the the false positive is a very big problem. And so if I guess that, you know, 123 Edward Street is likely to have a break and enter next week, and I'll send a cop by, that doesn't really cause any harm. But I mean, if we're creating a policing system where you're, you know, you're constantly bearing down on people because they meet a statistical profile, that's a different story. I mean, this takes profiling to a whole new level, doesn't it? It does, and yeah, you. Uh, I th- I think what you have to be careful is that is the problem. But it has, that's just, this is not new. Um, but he's right again. John's right again. The uh, so the analytics for doing this are there. They always have been there. It's the it's the people don't want to do it. Well, the no, social and, and pressure is huge. Well, yeah, the the the, the social cost. Uh, you know, privacy. You know, I can't even begin to describe what kind of a privacy breach this could be for some people, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, but I think again, you know, it's the right move to make. I think knowing how safer our city can be, there's nothing wrong with that. You have to temper it. And I, I truly believe, even though when John wrote his article, he could say that, uh, you know, we have to take it with a bit of skepticism. As you know, Alan, I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> That's why I write patents and design things. But um, I truly believe we can get it very accurate. I believe the uh, artificial intelligence and the ability to c- compute th- millions of pieces of data in seconds in an area can predict things. Um, but at the same time, I say it again, you must temper it because with that always comes the bad side. Um, and social things, as you know, here at our company, I don't allow it. We read plates and that, but we don't read the people behind the plates. Why? I don't believe in uh, doing that part, but others do, and that includes the police department. Let's let's talk about the issue of mobility then, which is a really big topic. When when you say mobility in your articles, what are you actually? What does that actually encompass? So it encompasses a lot, right? So um, you know, it encompasses some of what you guys have described that you do. Um, it has to do with um, you know the way transportation systems, you know, road, you know. Uh, traffic signals and uh, road capacity, how that is managed, uh, has to do with the way you estimate uh, ridership on transit vehicles, um, uh, you know, and then going forward, it also, uh, we have to bring into it the whole question about autonomous vehicles and, uh, you know, what is their role in the city? What, how will they function? Um, you know, and how will they interact with non-autonomous vehicles and pedestrians and bicycles and so on. So it's a, it's a really 
vast area. And certainly in, you know, in the work that I did, um, it's probably the most sought after application for smart city technology um, of all the different types of, uh, you know, uses. Well, let's talk about traffic, for example, because that's something that everybody can understand. Nobody likes being caught in traffic. And if you uh, drive in Toronto, for example, on, on Lakeshore in the wrong direction at the wrong time of day, you hit every single red light and they can't seem to get that. Well, well, before we even do that, uh, John, how much of this have you done where you've actually reviewed Toronto? Because we all live here and uh, I'm heavily understanding it. And I think you're right. It is the number one thing. But of your stuff, how many people or not even people, but studies, information, have you looked at as it relates to our city? Well, quite a bit. I mean, I've written about transportation and transit in Toronto for years. Um, so uh, there are many ways of answering this question, and there are many perspectives on to bring to it, right? I mean, if you're somebody who's driving and you're dependent on a car for whatever reason, you have a perspective on the transportation system. Um, and if you use a bicycle or if you use transit, you have a different perspective on the transportation system. And, you know, our public authorities are tasked with balancing those objectives and creating a system that inconveniences the fewest people the least. So, um, so that's, you know, I mean, at the core of it, that's the challenge. We all move through public space and through our city. Um, and, you know, we have to figure out how to do it in a way that's, you know, that's, that allows the city to function, allows businesses to do their work, allows people to get to school and whatnot. So that's the, you know, that's the kind of the core of it. And technology is part of that. All right. So let's 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 go back to traffic. Who is doing smart city traffic management the best? Or or what are some of the coolest things that you've seen in your studies of cities around the world when it comes to traffic management? Okay, well, so since you asked about Toronto, uh, so I think about three months ago, the city approved the purchase of a fairly large system of coordinated traffic lights that was that so this is a complicated story but it basically goes back to an approach that was that was um, invented in sydney australia and is used in a number of cities around the world and probably the best known example is manhattan where you know you've had that you know we've all had that experience of sitting in a cab in manhattan and suddenly all the lights are green. You're going down 8th Avenue or you're going up 5th Avenue. And that's all driven by a technology that um, uses, you know, a lot of feedback loops to sort of gauge where, um, you know, where intersections are uh, functioning well and which ones are clogged up. Uh, so the city of Toronto has actually just purchased that system. We used a different system for years and years. Um, I think it's a recognition on the part of the city that, there are parts of the downtown that are extremely congested, or they were extremely congested before the pandemic hit um, for various reasons. And so they're looking at a different approach to, um, you know, to getting that traffic moving more effectively. And so and when it does, it doesn't interfere with other forms of transportation, like streetcars or like, you know, people on bicycles or so. Um, so that's coming. That's that's a that's a big deal. That's great news, by the way. And this this is more than just traffic like timing. This is actually examining traffic flow and figuring out how to actually make things move smoothly based on the conditions of the moment. Correct? Yeah, but it, a lot of it has to do with traffic light timing. Like it's there's a um, it, you know it involves sensors in the road and it involves 
Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, what I'm what I'm saying in in Winnipeg, for example, there's Notre Dame. If you're leaving downtown uh, Winnipeg on Notre Dame, uh, the lights are timed that if you're going 60 kilometers an hour, you will hit them all. That's right. the only thing that keeps things moving. But you're talking about sensors and cameras and everything else that goes along with it to to help with that time. You know, Alan, if you remember, when we had Sandy from Amazon on one of our podcasts, and I, and I think John might know this, but you know they have this running in Milton. They do. Yes, the city of Milton implemented this with a local traffic supplier uh, and analytics with Amazon to better run their stoplights and so on and manage traffic and congestion, which just probably doesn't need as much as, well, doesn't need as much as Toronto. But um, man, it's um, it's been needed forever. And um, if they're going to start doing that, uh, I think it's going to really help. And, and it's like um, John said, though, the balance is tough, like, I think uh, the biggest struggling part of this whole thing right now is transit. Um, we can't fund it because no one's using it. No one's using it because everyone's driving their cars now because everyone thought there'd be no traffic, but there's worse traffic because no one will hop in the transit. I live out in Oakville, and when my uh, daughter-in-law hops on the transit, she says there's no one on it. She still takes it, by the way, but there's nobody on it. Um, you have to balance that. We have to say to people, get out of your car. I love my car. Get out of your car. Get on the streetcar. Get on the transit. Take the go. Um, you know, ride your bike. And that's, I think, I hope is the end result of all this is through all this smart city. Um, and it is the number one problem, mobility. We have to be able to take everything in line through analytics, say, you need to do this. And that may include, Alan, even offering things to people, incentives to do the right thing for us in the city. Okay, let's let's talk about transit. Have you seen some really interesting smart tran- uh, smart transit initiatives somewhere in the world? Yeah. So again, these really vary. So there, um, so you have innovations like um, automated train control systems, right? And so you know, Toronto is doing some of that. There are other cities that are much more advanced where you you know you can you have uh, lower, uh, you have shorter uh, head times because the trains can communicate with each other as opposed to just going through a central controller, that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that that's the, the MRT in Singapore. Uh, driverless trains that are like, uh, you know, blocks long um, that pull up to suicide doors within a centimeter of where the doors open and get people in and on. And you never have to wait for more than, Six minutes for us. How do we get there here, though? Well, I don't. See, know. I want to get there. Well, me too. <laughs> you know, same thing in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has the same yep. kind of transit. But system. back to John. So he's seen these, and and um, John, do you think that's coming in Toronto? Based on your knowledge of discussion, I always say this is. I, gonna, I'm going to do a little bit of a sidebar that um, we don't get that kind of transit because we don't want to pay for that kind of transit. And we don't have the population density in some cases to support that kind of transit. So the most efficient transit systems are in very high density Asian cities. Okay. Let, let me give you this. What comes first? That's a good one though. What now, comes first, the density or the transit? If, if you build a transit line um, as you're building out the city, in a, in a city, not a rural area. No, no, no. We're, we're talking yeah. about... With traffic, yeah. You know, what, what's... It's a chicken and egg thing. Do you do you, do you serve the density or do you build the... the, uh, the let's for say the future. The, the subway yeah, yeah. for the future density. 
Well, I think it's an iterative process, but I do think that that where I see it works best is where you you make the investment in infrastructure and then you promote the growth around that infrastructure. So we sometimes, uh, we have examples um, like the Shepherd Avenue subways, for instance, right? Where uh, the former mayor, Mel Lastman, was very intent on getting a Shepherd Avenue subway bill, you know, funded and approved, and he did. But then the city didn't come through with the second part, which is just making it very easy for development to land along Shepherd Avenue to take advantage of the rapid transit. And so the developers always have to fight to get an approval. And, you know, I mean, it, it's working out, but it's taking a lot longer. Um, so that's one part of it. So you have to, it has to, the, the two things have to go in lockstep. But if you look at, you know, most cities with rapid transit, I mean, those, those lines were present before the density. Or in some cases, they were uh, they were built privately as in New York City the, um, to to disperse the density. So um, you know the investment is important um, ahead of time. Yeah, and 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 that's the point right there. If you look at um, okay, let's talk about the density and so on. There's density for many reasons, but I think that what we've tried to do in Toronto somehow is to discourage people not to drive and take transit. That may be, guys, transit tax, whatever, which, which again, I believe in doing um, because even though I'm heavily into car tracking and all that, I believe there has to be that balance for our future. But if you look at uh, Singapore or, or Shanghai, um, the reason people are so close to transit is, one, it's very efficient there's a reason to hop on that transit and you'll say, I can do this better than driving. But a lot of people don't buy into that here. And number two is they create you to take it because they don't offer you the ability to drive your car as much as you want. Oh, well, no. Do you know what the tax is on buying Absolutely. A, a simple Toyota in Singapore is? You can pay $60,000, $65,000 for what they call a certificate of entitlement. Yeah, so let's be careful. It's not necessarily always density more than demand. Right. And and quite frankly, I've heard the city many times, many mayors say, we've got to do this. And of course, we have to also understand, appreciate, respect everyone's needs who are saying, no way. Um, you're talking to a converted was no way to, you know what, I'm thinking about this now and we have to develop that. And then it comes to what, um, what John said, it's, it's about investment. Where does those dollars come from? And I don't, can't answer that today. And I think they should be addressed. And then the number two is, he said, regulations. How much are these developers getting put through to do things? And are they being discouraged to say, you know what, the heck with it. Um, I don't know that, by the way. I'm just saying, as you know, I deal with most of the major developers, but I'm just saying, I don't know that. I know that a lot of developments are done along the LRT um, and, um, and, and the subway system through condominiums and so on, but money and regulation, two big things that face uh, the future of developing these things. Well, let's talk one more thing about traffic and then we'll move on to something else. Um, did you do any studies on congestion charges? Okay, so congestion pricing. Congestion pricing, like we have in London and, and, and Singapore. New York. New York. now doing it, and, and, and L.A., and they're all wanting to do it. But go ahead, John. See what you saw. Um, so for this series, I didn't talk about congestion charges. I mean, I've written about it before. Um, it, uh, 
you know, it's there's a question of political will because people don't like congestion charges, uh, and you could bring in a system of congestion charges if you have a good alternative, people, right? So if you're if you're looking at you know, uh, you know, two hundred dollars a month and you know extra fees to drive your car to the office, uh, but then you can transfer to a good transit system that's not going to you know that's not going to stress you out too much then you have that option. And I think that in places which have done congestion charges well, like London and like Stockholm, for example, then you, you know you have that you have the plan B for for drivers. Um, and I don't think that we've done that yet because we haven't really invested in a lot of rapid transit. We have a lot of overcrowded rapid transit, or we did until the pandemic. Um, so the other thing about congestion charges is that it's um, you know, there's this question about where to put the cordon and how do you, you know, how do you charge people? So in Toronto, it's always discussed as, uh, you know, a toll on the gardener and on the Don Valley Parkway, for example, uh, which is essentially kind of pushing the financial obligation out into the 905. And it doesn't kind of address the fact that there are people who are living in Rosedale and Forest Hill and in High Park who are driving their cars downtown and causing a lot of congestion. Um, and they can continue to do that with a, you know, with tolls on the highways. So, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it worked in London because London, London had, for one thing, a catastrophically complicated congestion problem because the streets change direction every hundred feet, uh, and the, I mean, it's true. And um, so are the subways, <laughs> and they had a subway system that goes back to the Victorian era. So. Okay, let's let's move on to some other things. What are other some other uh, initiatives that you're seeing in in cities around the world that that really kind of excited? Can you? I bring up one that's okay? Interesting? You go first because I want to hear is, is John's very non political. Uh huh. He's very John. You're very non committal to taking sides here. <laughs> um, but how about we have this great big thing, and it's gonna if you're gonna do a smart city. You got to have this 5G. <laughs> John, 5G, what do you think? Well, first of all, let me just say that there's been a lot of ridiculous conversation about 5G. Uh, yes, thank so, you. I'm with you. So I can't comment on the security issues around Huawei and 5G, right? Because I like I, it's not something I cover. I mean, I've read about it just like you've read about it, but I don't know. My take on 5G is that general consuming public doesn't quite understand exactly what the functionality of 5G is. Like 5G is is a, an order of magnitude more powerful. It's about very, very large data transfers, right? So it's like, oh, okay, I can play this, you know, the, you know, the multiplayer gaming and I'm going to have better reception and, you know, it's, uh, but it's not really about that. And because it's all built on you know, private investment by the, you know, by the, you know, telecom companies. I mean, their first target are places where they have sufficient density of subscribers to justify the considerable capital cost of putting the 5G network in place, which is not trivial because it's a different type of, you know, there are different types of uh, um, transmission towers and so on. So I think this is a story where the you know, like the, there's a, an old expression, but the killer app, the killer application is not quite expressed itself yet in the marketplace. And I have every confidence that it's going to, but I just don't see what it is just yet. 
I don't think anybody does. I think I think he's he, dead on. Yeah, and, and when it does happen, it's gonna things are gonna happen really, really. Well, quickly. I get five G's like saying it's a, it's now basically as you guys know, it's, it's just strictly a word. Yeah. Um, when it's you a see buzzword, you, and people don't know what it means. When you when you see in practice with everyday people and everyday activities, they don't know that even when they have five G, it's yeah, probably four G that's running is. on their phone. But but I I think you need it. Guys, I think oh, no, that, it's, and it may not be 5G, guys. With quantum computing, it may be even higher levels. But but sooner or later, we're going to need it. Okay. I don't know when so it's coming. So let, let me refine this question for John. Uh, and it is, what impact do you think 5G will have on smart cities? Yeah, forget about the security side, which Just, is a big factor. Yeah. Strictly the ability to, well, let's go back to with, it. With these Mobility. Ma- yeah, with yeah, these yeah. these massive data transfers, speeds. People moving, buildings okay. building, all that stuff. Events, all that stuff. Uh, just before I answer that question, let me just, I'll make a, uh, I'll make an opinionated remark, which is that, uh, which is that in the last nine or 10 months, right, we've all realized just how inf- important having uh, digital information and access to good wireless networks is, right? Uh, so, I mean, we're all in the GTA. It's pretty easy. You know, we're talking over, uh, you know, 4G or 3G line. It's no problem at all. But, you know, but if you're in, Halliburton, or if you're in, if you're on the shore of Lake Huron, your reception, you know, your connectivity is much more constrained. And so I think that that's a big investment issue. It's a public policy issue. I mean, it's been identified, but I think it's really important. Um, so the, the 5G example that um, I've heard about, which is relevant, I think, in the smart city context is smart traffic lights or, or smart intersections. So if you could kind of uh, sort of imagine yourself going forward, you know, in 20 years perhaps, and you have a lot of smart and connected vehicles moving back and forth and crossing each other in intersections. Um, there's there's discussion about how you do that without actually having lights where you have, you know, the vehicles connecting one another and, you know, their speeds are adjusted um, automatically so they can kind of move through tra- intersections. And so that's very dependent on very, very high speed, um, the, the presence of very high speed, very reliable wireless network connectivity, connecting you know, vehicle A to vehicle B to vehicle C. And you can't have any latency at all, right? You need, to, you need those signals to be moving basically um, at the speed of light. Um, and the problem with you know, our current system is our current networks is that there is a lag time and uh, the lag time is not, you know, it's not possible in that kind of application. So that's a classic chicken and the egg problem where, so I can comment on another question about that kind of intersection, but let's just say we've got the, you know, the AVs and, you know, they're very reliable and safe and all of that. Um, Creating that kind of intersection, you have to have complete confidence in the network and in the backup system for the network and in the speed of the network in order for that to work um, as it's envisioned. That's the, that to me is one of the really big applications. Alan, I don't think anyone listening to this, when they listen to this, will actually understand or believe what John's just said, but it's true. They want to have the cars be... Well, when you have all the cars talking to each it's other. It's unbelievable. I you, mean, you know I know, I know. It's, uh, I believe it, by the way, guys. The, the, the problem you get into, which we said we would not talk about, it's a cyber side. Who's going to turn that car off and on? What happens when it doesn't connect? Is there 
a redundancy feature that what stops if there's that a power out yeah i know, you know there's and a lot of there'll things. be redundancy things and so on but he's right um Guys, you know they all happen. We just talk about them now. But anyone listening to go, what does he mean, no lights? What does he mean that cars speak to each other? But I believe that will happen. I don't know when, but. It's just a matter of creating this this, <laughs> this network upon network upon network situation that is reliable and, and very, 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 very fast. So that when, you well, do, when you're in your self-driving car and you approach an intersection, you know that you're not going to get Well, when you run in light speed. Uh, as uh, as John mentioned, and if you if we ever and get to quantum computing, we're using qubits, and of course that's instantaneous inputs. You're running six or seven ports instead of one because it's um, powerless. Uh, you don't need to power it; it runs on light. Um, you probably won't have that problem, but we're not there. Um, as you know, there's satellites being launched now to do it. But we're not there. But I think the concept of what he's saying is in everything in smart city. Okay. One more thing. And and that is if if in all the cities that you studied, what is the coolest thing that you saw that's not necessarily practical, but is just like, wow, this is sci-fi. It doesn't have to be technology. It could be innovation. Well, anything to do with smart yeah, city. Yeah, yeah. Really smart cool city, smart city. Smart city innovation. Okay. So I saw the demonstration of something called a uh, um, a digital twin uh, when I was at the Smart City Expo, and what it is is uh, you have you have a so it's it's visualization software that creates a very dense three dimensional map of uh, you know a city, some sort of urban space, and that you know it it includes like data like emissions and traffic volumes and it's it's a really dense layered thing and what you can do with that is for from a planning point of view is you could say okay well to use the singapore example let's say we slap a ten thousand dollar tax on all new vehicle registrations and so we can project that that the number of vehicles will drop by 80 percent and so you you query this visualization tool and you say, okay, well, what happens if we have 80% fewer vehicles on the road? What does that look like? And then say, okay, well, if we have, if the roadway is replaced with, you know, more pedestrian activity, what does that, you know, how does that impact development and so on? And I, I, I thought that those visualization tools, they're great assist for planners who have to kind of take in more and more complicated information all the time. Um, you know, balancing and brokering and, you know, just kind of really understanding all the things that are going on in urban spaces. Um, and, you know, acknowledging that these tools are not a prediction of what will happen, right? Because they're, because, I mean, they're, they're estimates, but they're not going to, you know, we, we can't say, oh, well, this will be the outcome, but they do give you the ability to think about the consequences of policy choices in uh, three dimensions. And I think I was quite taken by those kind of tools. And there are a bunch of different companies developing them. Okay. So the city of New York could, for example, look at uh, Broadway uh, or or Times Square. If we cut off a certain amount of traffic to Broadway or, or Times Square, what will be the knock-on effects when it comes to- All the impacts, yeah. not just cars. No, no not yeah. just cars, but you know, pedestrians and transit and development and retail, tourism and tourism. retail and all that sort of Is stuff. Is that what you're saying, John? Yeah. So that that's- and, and it's it's quite visual. Um, there's a there's a good example close to home. A company in Toronto called Ratio City, which does this kind of visualization on development applications. And so they basically say, okay, well, 
the site is zoned for four times coverage. So you could, you know, you could model, you know, you could have, you could max out this, this metric or this metric and, you know, what will the impact be on street, you know, uh, you know, traffic and on pedestrian volumes and so on. And, you know, the impact on, um, on neighboring, uh, developments and so on. And I, I just think it's a very useful tool. So when, when you say, Visualize. Yeah, I'm asking. What do you mean by what, what do you mean by visualization? What are you looking at in it's, one of it's, these systems? So it's uh, so this is a very simplistic way. It's like a SimCity thing, but it's much more. It, you know, it's higher resolution. Wow! So it's like a you see it. You yeah, can yeah, it's see a the, the so I want to get this. Yeah. <laughs> and so you could you could. I think every city should have it. Yeah. The, um, the one that I saw, you know, you could spin the city around. Like you could look at it from different. Oh my God. You, you could look at it higher or lower. You could zoom in and zoom out. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of cool. So, so just so you know, when I was in Wuxi in China, I uh, we went to a smart city and it had uh, a room that was dark with a whole city, smart city with lights. And it turned off and on and how it worked, right? When you entered energy and so on, but nothing close to this. And I have to tell you something, guys. I get calls from Dell developers. You know what they say to me? They say, Grant, I want to go to the city and I want to do these five things, but you know what? I can't present the impact. I cannot present it. They want to know the impact. Why do you want to build this and do this and do that? If I, if, okay. Think of it, Alan. I will, I, okay. I'm going to give you a current example. There is a block of city owned property, uh, west of Young Street, south of Eglinton, that they want to completely redevelop. There's all yeah, these brutal, yeah, we know about yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. brutalist buildings over yeah, the Canadian yeah, yeah. Tire and all the rest of it, and and they want to build these towers, but they they don't want to have streets coming through because they say uh, for for whatever reason the developers don't feel the streets are aesthetic. What they want are these public spaces surrounded by these big towers. And the critics of this are saying, well, wait, 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 wait a second. What you're going to do is is you're basically walling off this giant block from the rest of the city. What's the impact of that going to be on on things like you know retail and crime and walking and all the other? But they can't even get permits well, until they present these. Well, types that's of it. But we don't. Again, you know the stuff that John's talking about. He's talking it about does it. the data that we could get using these visualization yeah. programs. Okay, it's right. phenomenal. I love it. For anybody who is interested in what's going on in cities around the planet and how they're planning for the future, I highly recommend that you go into the Toronto Star archives and look at John's. Um, series on, on smart cities. How many articles were there? Five, six? Ten. That's why you felt so tired by the end of it. Uh, by the end of it, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Okay, ten. Wow. Uh, well, well, you know, thank you. Good for you yeah, for, and I'm for, glad for you're doing, doing this, this John. Yeah. I, I think it's great you're doing it. I think that, like, you can probably tell I love our city. Um, I have had places all over the place, but Toronto is a great city, and I really want more people to to adapt to it. There's a lot of questions I still have that I didn't ask you, even up to why Sidewalk Labs didn't work. And we can go in another day on that. But I'm going to tell you, it's great to have someone cover this like, and I'd recommend people start following John. Yeah. Thank you very much, John. We will get you back and we will talk about some of these things <laughs> like smarts, uh, like Sidewalk Labs in, <laughs> in, in, in the future. Meanwhile, go to the Toronto Star, look for John Lawrence. It's L-O-R-I-N-C. And uh, learn about what's going to happen to your neighborhood very soon. Thanks, John. Right. Thanks so much. And that's it for this edition of the Smart City Podcast. Thanks again to our guest, John Lawrence. We'll be back soon with another program featuring more smart people and their ideas for connecting us together through smart technologies. Feedback is always welcome. Send everything and anything to feedback at thesmartcity.blog. Note the URL, dot blog. 
Check out our website, which is thesmartcity.blog. That's where you'll find past programs as well as an idea of who's coming up on future programs. The Smart City Podcast, brought to you by Locomobi World, moving the world through sustainable, frictionless, and secure solutions. Executive producer is Grant Furling. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. Executive assistant is Andrew Crawford. I'm Alan Cross, and we'll see you next time.